Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. What's crack-a-lacking, y'all? Oh, we did the crack-a-lacking again. You got some crack-a-lacking. Ah. It's one of the, you know, it's a nice day out. It is. It actually was. We're, uh, we're the part of Canada where it doesn't snow yep. in April or pretty much ever. I was going to say, don't tell the rest of Canada how nice it is here today because they'll it's be mad. It's a lovely day. And no uh, jacket for me today. I was shoveling sunshine. <laughs> Take that, Ontario. <laughs> That's not true. Mm. Let's get to it. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians who are interested in the dark side of Canadian history. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Welcome to episode 23 of Dark Poutine. In this helping, we choke down the crimes committed by registered nurse Elizabeth Wetlofer in Ontario, including the murders of eight helpless elderly patients who were in her care at the time between 2007 and 2014, the attempted murders of four more, and aggravated assault of another two. She sounds like a peach. Jeez, eh? On October 5th, 2016, Wetlofer met with uh, OPP officers and confessed to the eight murders. The murder victims were James Silcox, 84, Maurice Moe Granat, 84, Gladys Millard, 87, Helen Matheson, 95, Mary Zura Winsky, 96, Helen Young, 90, Maureen Pickering, 79, and her last victim, Arpad Horvath, who was 75 years old. Hmm. Do you remember this case? It's very recent. It's not ringing a bell, no. Okay, I remember it very well. Her weapon of choice was insulin. Hmm. As you probably know, insulin is a common treatment for diabetes. Yep. As easily as we can explain, insulin is a natural hormone secreted by the pancreas and regulates the level of sugar glucose in the blood. Mm, sugar. I know, right? Uh, insulin allows the body cells to use glucose for energy. Mm, glucose. Okay. You're a silly man. Totes. If the pancreas is damaged or stops working, the body loses its ability to regulate the level of sugar in the blood. It stops producing natural insulin. Oh. Yeah. Thus, you get high blood sugar. Oh. And prolonged levels of high blood sugar can cause diabetes. Symptoms of diabetes. I, can't, I have to say diabetes so many times. Diabetes. Okay, Wilfred. Brimley. 
And we're not making fun of people who are diabetic because we have lots of friends who are oh, diabetic. Absolutely. Hi, Art. I know you're listening. No, it's a terrible uh, uh, disease. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Some symptoms of diabetes are unusual thirst, frequent urination, weight change, gain or loss, extreme fatigue or lack of energy, blurred vision, frequent or recurring infections, cuts and bruises that are slow to heal, tingling or numbness in the hands or feet. Yeah, I think I have diabetes. <laughs> like, not even joking. I'm pretty was, con- going honestly, through I, that. I thought that too. Going through that, it's like, oh man. But I, I've been told not to diagnose yourself on the internet. Probably the best way to uh, crazy talk to determine whether you ha- are a diabetic or not is to go to your doctor. Hmm. You don't say. Yeah. Hmm. Some treatments for all forms of diabetes are regular physical activity. Mm, oh. Good nutrition. Oh. Uh, especially regarding carbohydrate intake Uh-oh. and weight management. No, there's an all for me. Uh, type 1 diabetes always requires medications, uh, usually insulin. Insulin has a specifically Canadian connection too. Oh. Yes. Did you not know this? No. Mm. Okay. I, I don't know a lot of things. <clears throat> I'm aware of that. Insulin was isolated by Frederick Banting and his assistant Charles Best in the 1920s at the University of Toronto. Oh, I knew that. No, I did. Okay. After successful animal trials and more on diabetic volunteers, they started to use it more regularly for mm-hmm. folks. Although not a cure, insulin quickly proved to be a miracle treatment for diabetics and remains a staple in the treatment of otherwise often deadly metabolic disorder. Hmm. Oh, so many medical terms in this one. I'm so screwed. Dr. Brown. Yeah, well, that's my father. That's who I was talking about. Okay. Did I ever tell you this? No, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get too off track here. I'll tell you my dad's story maybe in the after show. Okay, I look uh, forward to it. Banting and the director of the University of Toronto lab, J.J.R. McLeod, who had provided the facility for the study, received the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1923. Banting split his prize money with Best, who he thought should actually have been receiving the Nobel Prize with him, as McLeod only provided the facility. Not all Canadian history is dark. Yes, you're welcome, diabetics all over the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that is pretty, uh, a pretty key component in medical history yeah, there. That's, that's a big a, discovery. Yeah. However, an overdose of insulin can cause your body to absorb too much sugar and for your liver to stop releasing glucose into your bloodstream. This is called hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. Hyperglycemia is too much. Too much. Hypo, too low. Some of the symptoms of mild hypoglycemia are sweating, clamminess, chills, lightheadedness or dizziness, mild confusion, anxiety or nervousness, shakiness, and rapid heartbeat. Why is it everything that you've listed so far with everything I have? I'm like, oh, I'm pr- pretty much I'm dying is what, <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm gathering from this. I'm pretty much about to die. Well, if you think about it really philosophically, we kind of all are. Should we end the that's, podcast that's there? A deep, that's a deep, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Great episode. Great episode. That's thanks, depressing. Thanks for listening. You're all going to die. <laughs> Symptoms of severe hypoglycemia, also known as insulin shock or diabetic shock, are concentration problems, seizure, unconsciousness, and may even lead to death. I have that right now. No, you don't. Yep. I'm, you, I'm unconscious right you, now. You may be confused. <laughs> Constant state of. Yes. 
The first attempt at suicide by insulin was recorded in 1927, and the first recorded murder by way of insulin was in the UK in 1957. Kenneth Barlow, a 38-year-old unemployed registered nurse, murdered his wife, Elizabeth. Hmm. He was sentenced to life in prison, but got out in 1984. Hmm. He was in prison for a long time. Yeah, not life, though. No. There have been other high-profile cases of poisoning by insulin. One notable case was that of Klaus von Bülow, who had tried to poison his wife, Sonny, with a lethal dose of insulin. Hmm. Another widely known case was that of Beverly Ollett, a nurse who was given 13 life sentences for murdering and attacking British children in her care by giving them insulin. Ollett was dubbed the Angel of Death. Jeez. I was reading somewhere that this person said that they found Angel of Death episodes boring. Oh, I don't see how that's... Yeah, I was trying to figure that out myself. Yeah, I've watched a fair amount of uh, true crime stuff on killer nurses. Yeah. And it's quite fascinating. Yeah, so perhaps this person thinks that easy targets are boring or something, and maybe yeah. maybe they're an actual serial killer. Uh-oh. Well, we all have different tastes, too, so, you know. Yeah. Healthcare killers are rare, especially in Canada, and Wetlawfer is the first I can recall in our country. Yeah, I don't, I haven't heard of any. So, who is Elizabeth Wetlawfer? Um, it's a nurse who kills people. Oh God! Did I? That did... was called. That's a. That's called rhetorical question. Well, I, it's I, a question that I ask, but I'm actually going to answer. Well, I just did so. So can we end the podcast? Twice, here? two times in five minutes, we've ended this episode. Uh, we're sorry, yeah. folks. Yep. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. Killer nurse. Elizabeth Tracy May Parker was born on June 10th, 1967 in a small community called South Zora Township, just outside of Woodstock, Ontario. (laughs) Now, this isn't the Woodstock that Americans know from 1969, where Jimi Hendrix and a bunch of people showed up. This is in Ontario. What's what's that one? I never heard of that. Is it... uh, Stop. Did it go all right? Yeah, it it was a party. Oh, like a, like Don't today. take the brown acid, Scott. The brown acid is bad. Oh, okay. That's what I usually go for first. Yeah, don't do but, it. Okay. Good. Noted. Elizabeth came from a strict fundamentalist Christian home. Her father, Doug, an elder in the church, was a controlling man. Elizabeth's mother, Hazel, was an obedient wife. Elizabeth herself was expected to carry herself like a good Christian girl. Hmm. People in school called her Bethy, which she hated. In an effort to take control, Elizabeth said she was changing her first name to Beth with an E. She thought this would change things, but people kept calling her Bethy anyway. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, it's school. Yeah. Elizabeth began to struggle with her sexuality through high school and even hit on another girl in the neighborhood who rejected her. Psychologically, her struggles with sexuality were even more rough on Elizabeth as her father was vocally opposed to homosexuality due to their religion. Jeez. It was, according to him, an abomination in the eyes of God. Yeah, that like, imagine growing up in that environment, and and I'm sure lots of our listeners have. She could not disappoint Daddy, but the problem would not go away. Mm -hmm. By the end of high school, Elizabeth was miserable. Yeah. She was looking forward to escaping from out from under and being able to make her own decisions and do what she wanted to do. After a brief dalliance with journalism, Elizabeth decided she wanted to be a guidance counselor to help kids in high school who were struggling. I guess she related to that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like her heart was in the right place. It wasn't later on. Well, that's, you know, clearly. But I mean, it sounds like she used her suffering early on to Mm -hmm. try to do better. 
She went to London Baptist Bible College to pursue a bachelor's degree in counseling. <laughs> Elizabeth's father, always controlling, even enrolled to take courses at the college while his daughter was at school. Oh, jeez. He That's... wanted to keep an eye on her because he suspected something was up. Jeez. Oh, she... I, I wouldn't even go to school when it was for me. Right? She was caught at a gay-friendly church with a girlfriend. Her father was oh. livid, and Elizabeth was sent home. Oh. She was allowed to come back to school only after agreeing to undertake reparative or conversion therapy. Oh, that drives me crazy. According to Wikipedia, conversion therapy is the pseudoscientific practice of trying to change an individual's sexual orientation from homosexual or bisexual to heterosexual using psychological or spiritual interventions. There is virtually no reliable evidence that sexual orientation can be changed, and medical bodies warn that conversion therapy practices are ineffective and potentially seriously harmful. Yeah, I agree with that statement. Elizabeth's family wanted to pray the gay away, even though to this day her mother remains in denial about her daughter's sexuality. Oh, wow. Can you imagine the impact that that has on somebody's developing mind, their outlook on the world? Oh, I have a, a healthy amount of friends who um, are going through a lot of struggles with family because of either gender reassignment mm -hmm. uh, or just... Sexuality. Yeah, yep. and the stuff I, I, I hear from them and talk to them about, I wish the parents could just understand you're doing harm to your child. I'm glad I didn't have to struggle with that too much when I was a kid. Obviously, when I had the stuff happen to me that I talked about in uh, episode 10, I had some questions about my own sexuality, but mm -hmm. I didn't really struggle as mightily as I've seen some do. Yeah. One particular friend of mine growing up, I remember, uh, he had a very, very hard time and, and I empathized with this situation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, it, it pains me to think of a, of a, a parent pushing a child away. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to agree with everything, but they're, they're your damn child. And as long as they're doing good and, and happy, love them. When Elizabeth returned to school, she admitted to having been a sinner, but was ready to repent. Inwardly, she was depressed and full of self-hatred and doubt. Elizabeth got her counseling degree, but right away decided it wasn't for her. She went back to school, this time to become a registered nurse. Elizabeth graduated from nursing school in 1995 and had a couple of nursing jobs, but still felt unsettled. At church, Elizabeth met a truck driver named Donnie Wetlofer. Although she continued to struggle internally with their sexuality, to her parents' relief, the pair were married in 1997. Around this time, Elizabeth was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and began therapy. As well, she developed an addiction to hydromorphone, which she stole from patients, and had her nursing license restricted as a result. She also began to drink heavily, developing alcoholism. Mm. She OD'd at one point and had to go from full-time to taking casual shifts, helping people in their homes as she needed to recover from her overdose. Even though married to Donnie, Elizabeth Wetlofer continued to chat with women online behind Donnie's back. Hmm. She even met a few, but was caught by Donnie in 2007. He was destroyed and left Elizabeth in February 2007 in a rage, vowing a divorce. Hmm. Elizabeth moved in with her girlfriend right away, and the pair even got engaged. They needed money. Elizabeth felt she was ready to go back to work and got a full-time job at the nursing home called Caressant Care at 81 Fife Avenue in Woodstock in June of 2007. 
It was here that Elizabeth Wetlaufer crossed the line she couldn't come back from. Hmm. Elizabeth was stressed out, often dealing with 32 patients with 32 different treatments in one shift. She took the edge off with a couple of hydromorphone now and again. I don't know what hydromorphone is. It's an opiate. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, painkiller. Okay. She was angry at the world and began to take it out on her patients. She became obsessed with hurting people and later claimed she heard a voice inside telling her it would use her and not to worry. Mm. Wetlaufer's first insulin victim was 88-year-old dementia patient Clotilda Adriano in July of 2007. Elizabeth wanted to see what happened firsthand when you gave someone too much insulin. Elizabeth didn't really want her to die. She was angry and had a sense inside that Cotilda might be a person that God wanted back with him. I guess she was just resigned to, I'll just do this. Yeah. Elizabeth gave Mrs. Adriano a diabetic 40 extra units of insulin from her own supply. Cotilda did not die. She was saved by other staff members at the nursing home who noticed that she was struggling. She was hypoglycemic. Yep. So they helped to raise her blood glucose levels back to normal. But at the same time, Elizabeth had had a little experience now. Like yep. yep. It's that whole... Trial and error. Yep. Catilda's sister-in-law, 88-year-old Albina Dimideros, lived right next door to Cotilda. And she was the next victim of wet lawfare. Hmm. Albina was also suffering from dementia and was an insulin-dependent diabetic. Wet Lawfer told police later that she overdosed Mrs. Dimideros more than once. Albina was also saved more than once by caressing care staff members who found her in distress. Wet Lawfer's first murder happened in August 2007. Hmm. Elizabeth had her trial runs with Clotilda and yep. Albina. And now she wanted to give it a, a real shot. This time, Wetlaufer's target was a man and one she hated. <laughs> James Silcox. He was an 84-year-old World War II veteran who was suffering from the effects of a stroke he'd had in the spring of 2007. A bum hip as well as Alzheimer's disease and he was an insulin-dependent diabetic. Mr. Silcox had been married for 63 years. He was the father of six children, a grandfather and a great-grandfather. He'd worked at Standard Tubing in Woodstock for more than 30 years. Silcox's personality changed after his stroke. Combined with Alzheimer's, this made him a difficult patient at times. He'd angrily say inappropriate things and had been known to grab nurses' breasts and buttocks. Hmm. He'd even grabbed Elizabeth once. Mr. Silcox had surgery on his hip on August 4th and returned to caressing care on August 10th. Elizabeth was working a double shift on August 11th. She became obsessed with overdosing Mr. Silcox. He was not her patient, but she was sick and tired of hearing him say the things he did. She was angry and thought he deserved to die, that it was, in her words, his time to go. Jeez. Not realizing Mr. Silcox was diabetic and had his own supply, Elizabeth stole 50 units of fast-acting insulin from the unlocked storage at about 9.30 p.m. At 10.30 p.m., when no one else was around, she administered the insulin to Mr. Silcox, being careful to hide the injection site. So she's definitely mm. planning. Yeah, absolutely. Throughout the night after being overdosed, James Silcox cried out, I love you and I'm sorry. Hmm. He was found dead in his room at 3 a.m. Elizabeth called the attending physician and the Silcox family to advise of his passing. Like, how cold is that? Well, she probably gets a, a kick out of that. Oh, we'll get into that later. Okay. Although his family was suspicious right away, doctors ruled James Silcox's death due to complications from his recent surgery. They thought it was an embolism. Hmm. From court documents... Wetlaufer told police she felt absolutely awful and so ashamed about this 
and felt even worse when his family came in after he died and praised her for being a good nurse. I'm skeptical of that. Yeah. She also told police that after overdosing Mr. Silcox, it felt like pressure had been relieved from me just overall, like pressure lifted from my emotions. Hmm. Jeez. In December 2007, Elizabeth was planning her next murder. This time, Elizabeth Wetlaufer's victim was 84-year-old tinsmith and cancer patient Maurice Granat, known as Mo by his friends and family. As well as cancer, Mr. Granat was suffering from dementia, which made him difficult to deal with at times. Mm-hmm. On December 22, 2007, he grabbed Elizabeth's breast while she was tending to him. She told him to stop. He let go, and he laughed. Elizabeth seethed, and over the next day, she couldn't get the incident out of her head. The pressure began to build again. She began contemplating Mr. Gannat's demise. On December 23rd, Wetlaufer went to work. She'd been fighting with her girlfriend. She was miserable at her job and life in general. She stole between 40 and 60 units of short-acting insulin and loaded up a syringe when no one was looking. Elizabeth told Mr. Gannat that she needed to give him a vitamin shot. She injected the insulin into his leg since he had very little body fat due to his cancer. Staff at Crescent noticed that Mr. Granat was confused and agitated in the middle of the night. That morning, he slipped into a coma. His family was called, as were a couple of friends, by Wetlaufer herself. They were there with him as he died, right before noon that morning. Oh, jeez. Mr. Granat's death was not considered suspicious at the time. Well, there's only been a few, so they're, they're not going to be detecting patterns or anything. Just as their second one in right? different locations, I believe. In October 2008, Wetlawford decided it was time for Wayne Hedges, a 57-year-old schizophrenic, intellectually challenged diabetic, to go. Wetlawford injected him with a heavy overdose of insulin, but for some reason, she cannot recall, she gave him medication to restore his blood glucose levels when he was found hypoglycemic by another care worker. Wayne Hedges survived, but passed away in January of 2009, not in Wetlawford's care. I wondered about that I, as I was writing this. Why on earth would she OD him and then decide to bring him back? Maybe she wanted to feel that power too? Well, it, you did write that she brought him back after, brought his levels back after he was detected by another nurse. So it, she could also be afraid that she's going to get caught. Yep, could because be. Because, you know, she's in the room while that nurse is like, the only logical cause could be her. So she's just trying to yep. cover her tracks. Could be. Also in 2008 or 2009, Michael Priddle, a 60-year-old patient of caressing care suffering from the debilitating effects of Huntington's disease, was given an overdose of insulin by Wetlaufer. From court records, she described feeling a surging and thought, now this must be God because this man is not enjoying life at all. Ms. Wetlaufer remembers giving him what she considered a large amount of insulin and believed it was 90 units in total. Oh, wow. He, quote, just survived with no intervention from Wetlaufer or other. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Their staff. Hmm. Mr. Priddle passed away from Huntington's disease in 2012. This woman I loathe. No kidding. It's just these helpless people. Yeah, you know, again, it's another case of power and control. 
Yeah. On October 13th, 2011, Elizabeth Wetlofer was working the night shift from 11 p.m. One patient in her care was Gladys Millard, who had been born in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia in 1924. She and her husband had settled in Woodstock, and he had passed away in 1997. The mother of two was active with local charities and in her church. Sounds like a terrible person. Terrible. As well as other ailments, Miss Millard had been at the Caressant Care Nursing Home for management of her Alzheimer's disease. There were instances of her becoming aggressive with staff, and as her disease progressed, she became a handful to deal with. That doesn't mean she's going to die. No. Well, none of these people have done anything that requires them to die. I have done orderly work yep. and, and that kind of stuff in hospitals. And yes, people can be frustrating, absolutely. But I don't think anybody is frustrating to the point where you have to do something like this. Well, you, you don't get to play judge, jury, and executioner. She doesn't get to make these decisions. Well, she, so. she was clearly comfortable making those decisions. Well, she was making them, but that she's not. it's not right for her to be doing so. She, uh, again, power and control. Yeah. Elizabeth Wetlofer explained that she had a red surging feeling that Millard was supposed to die. Mrs. Millard, who was not a diabetic, was injected with 40 units of short-acting insulin after putting up a brief struggle with Wetlofer at 5 a.m. Mrs. Millard was found in distress, red, confused, and sweaty at 7 a.m., the end of Wetlofer's shift. You find somebody who's not diabetic in a hypoglycemic state, and you're not going to think they're hypoglycemic. Yeah, yeah, true. You know, like, yeah. what's wrong? Maybe maybe she's dying? Yeah, yeah. Elizabeth was terrified that somebody would figure out that she had something to do with Mrs. Millard's sudden turn for the worse, but they didn't. Gladys Millard died at four that afternoon. Wow. Her next victim was Helen Matheson, 95 years old. On October 25th, 2011, she'd been active in her church for many years. She was predeceased by her husband, survived by two sons, as well as grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Mrs. Matheson had come to caressing care in 2010, suffering from dementia. Elizabeth knew that Mrs. Matheson liked pie. She fed her some pie and ice cream, blueberry, and Mrs. Matheson only ate four bites, declining any more, saying that the Mm. crust was really good. Wetlofer looked at Mrs. Matheson thinking she was very quiet, very determined, and just seemed to be waiting to die. Oh, jeez, he's just justifying everything. Elizabeth had that feeling that Mrs. Matheson had to be the next to go. Elizabeth Wetlofer filled a syringe with 50 to 60 units of insulin, something Mrs. Matheson did not need. From court documents again, Wetlofer injected Helen Matheson with the insulin. There was no struggle or resistance. Helen Matheson was not a diabetic. Ms. Wetlofer explained to police that she got a feeling in my chest area after I did it. I got that laughter while injecting insulin and thereafter. Despicable. Helen Matheson didn't die right away. Wetlofer went home and came in to find Mrs. Matheson still clinging to life, but barely. Now in a palliative care bed with her family at her side. Wetlofer administered morphine to the dying woman to ease her suffering, and at 1 a.m. the next morning, Mrs. Matheson died with her son in the room. Her death was considered from natural causes, as Mrs. Matheson was one of the only victims of Wetlofers to have been buried and not cremated. Her family was done the indignity of having to go through her body being exhumed by search warrant for an autopsy in January of 2017 after Wetlofer had confessed to police. 
The autopsy was inconclusive, but Wettlofer's admissions, as well as other evidence, was enough to prove Helen Matheson's death was also a homicide. Mm. But why do that? Why put them through that? I yeah, guess I don't know. Trying to collect as much evidence as they can. Yeah, yeah. Just trying to make it as sealed as possible, the case. Mary Zerowinski was a 96-year-old dementia sufferer under Wettlofer's care on November 6, 2011. Mrs. Zerowinski was receiving end-of-life care, and Elizabeth Wettlofer decided to speed up the process by injecting the non-diabetic woman with 50 units of insulin as she lay already on her deathbed. Mm. Wettlofer claimed that she really liked Mrs. Zerowinski, that she was fun. Wettlofer said her usual general anger was there, and this was what she was feeling when she put the injection into Mrs. Zerowinski. But again, she reported that feeling of laughter in her tummy as she injected Zerowinski. What a disgusting uh, person. Like, how do you get to that point where you're, you're getting off on it? You, to, laughter. The feeling of laughter. Mrs. Zerowinski died on no, November 7th at 2.15 a.m. Her family was notified. Scottish-born Helen Whitelaw Marshall Young, 90, had been admitted to Caressant Care Home in 2009 with a number of medical issues, including dementia, but diabetes was not one of them. Hmm. Helen was often unhappy, saying she wanted to die. Well, okay. On July 13th, Ms. Wettlaufer was working the afternoon shift from 3 to 11 p.m. That afternoon, after 3 p.m., Young was again asking for help and repeating she wanted to die. It was like something snapped inside, and the red surge came back, and she thought to herself, okay, you will die. <sighs> that was from court documents again. Yeah, you can tell she's getting more and more comfortable with it every time. Mm -hmm. It's like angrier, too. You can, yeah. You can see the anger building as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. After dinner, Wettlaufer injected Helen Young with two syringes preloaded and hidden in Mrs. Young's room just prior. Elizabeth told Mrs. Young the injections were for pain. Mrs. Young began sweating and had a seizure around 9 p.m. She later acknowledged she was in a lot of pain. Mm. Helen Young passed away at 9.20 a.m. the next morning while Wettlaufer was at home in bed. Wettlaufer later hugged Helen Young's niece, who had come by to pick up some of her aunt's belongings. Wettlaufer expressed condolences for the family's loss. Had people done the right thing, the murders may have stopped right there. Elizabeth was feeling guilty about what she'd done, and she was haunted by it. Booze and drugs did not blot things out anymore. Mm -hmm. Also from court documents, on October 18th, 2013, Ms. Wettlaufer met with her pastor and his wife. During the meeting, she told them, among other things, that she had killed some of her patients. Jeez, okay. The pastor's wife recalls Ms. Wettlaufer mentioning the use of a drug. She believes the drug that was mentioned was insulin. Ms. Wettlaufer asked that they pray with her, and that is what they did. There was no follow-up. They decided never to speak to Ms. Wettlaufer about it again. The confession went unreported. Yeah, that's pretty criminal into, its, into itself, in my opinion. Like, I, I, I get that there's got to be confidentiality with uh, situations like that. But even um, psychiatrists and there medical professionals yeah. are required to have yeah, to report. Yeah. Yep. And so... Uh, if they believe somebody is going to be hurt or you're going to hurt yourself, um, then yes, yeah. they are duty bound to exactly. contact authorities. And I would imagine that that should 
stick through to uh, confessing to priests and whatnot. I mean. Yeah. Well, this pastor and his wife were later interviewed by police, and both of them said that they didn't believe what Elizabeth Wetlawford had told them, which is why they didn't report it. Again, it's not about what you believe, though. It's what you've been told. Yep. Elizabeth had killed six patients at Caressant Care. She wasn't done. Maureen O'Neill Pickering was born on June 9, 1935, and had resided in the town of Tilsonburg, Ontario. She came to Caressant Care for Alzheimer's and dementia in 2013. She was not diabetic. Mrs. Pickering had a tendency to wander and was sometimes aggressive. Elizabeth Wetlawfer resented the attention and care Mrs. Pickering required compared to the other patients. Wetlawfer claimed she didn't want to kill, she simply wanted Mrs. Pickering to be more manageable. Hmm. On March 22, 2014, Elizabeth thought inducing a diabetic coma would do the trick. She loaded two insulin needles. Wetlawfer gave a sedative first, then followed up with insulin, claiming it was a vitamin injection. With two and a half hours between injections, Wetlawfer gave Mrs. Pickering a first injection with 80 units of long-acting insulin, and then later, 60 units of short-acting insulin. Jeez, that's a lot. It really is. Mrs. Pickering fought for her life over the next six days, but eventually passed away on March 28, 2014. Interestingly, Wetlawfer was gone from caressing care by that time. Oh. She'd been fired for a medication error with another patient. Hmm. Just a few weeks later, in April of 2014, Wetlawfer was hired by another nursing home, the Meadow Park Nursing Home in London, Ontario. They had found her resume. She had not applied there, so they didn't bother checking her references. Hmm. So she just locked into a job after she was fired from another one for hurting a patient. Yeah. But it was a non-criminal thing, the thing that she got fired for. Oh, okay. Uh, one of the patients Wetlawfer had interactions with was Arpad Horvath. She managed to keep a low profile until August 23rd, 2014. She was working an afternoon shift with Mr. Horvath. Mm. He was 75 at the time. He had successfully run a tool and die business for 50 years. He'd come to Meadow Park when he became too much for his family to handle. He had dementia and also he was a diabetic. He was known to swear at staff and occasionally was inappropriate. The day of Mr. Horvath's murder, Wetlawfer had noted a couple of instances of aggression uh, and spitting in his logbook. Hmm. Feeling frustrated and angry with Mr. Horvath, Elizabeth Wetlawfer loaded up two syringes and went to his room at 8 p.m. Wetlawfer injected Mr. Horvath with 80 units of short-acting insulin and 60 units of long-acting insulin. Again, another large dose. They get bigger and bigger. Yeah. He didn't react right away. Eight hours later, Elizabeth Wetlawfer was at home. Mr. Wetlawfer was found unresponsive, sweating profusely, and having multiple seizures. He was admitted to hospital but died seven days later. No autopsy was performed at the time, but as with Mrs. Matheson, Mr. Horvath was also buried and not cremated. His family had to go through his being exhumed as part of the investigation. And again, the autopsy results were inconclusive due to the advanced state of decay. Yeah. But the evidence was there, again, pointing its cold finger right at Elizabeth Wetlawfer. So why bother to torture these poor families. Yeah, again, it's just got to be about needing to do their due diligence and collecting evidence, but yep. those poor families have to endure uh, going through all of that. 
Wetlaufer left Meadow Lake to attend to her drug and alcohol problems in October of 2014. Well, good for her. Mm -hmm. She began to talk about her murders to her friends and acquaintances in recovery, and most of them dismissed her as a bullshitter and a weirdo. She didn't come right out and really talk about having done what she did. Mm. She was beating around the bush a little bit. My God. In January 2015, Wetlaufer obtained employment at Lifeguard Home Care of Brantford, Ontario, and was attending to patients at Telfer Place Long-Term Care Facility. One patient Wetlaufer met was Sandra Towler. She was diagnosed with many medical conditions, including dementia and Alzheimer's disease, as well as diabetes that was controlled by a non-insulin oral medication. Mm. Wetlaufer sensed that Mrs. Towler wanted to go. Oh, God. On September 6, 2015, Wetlaufer injected Sandra Towler with 80 units of long-acting insulin and 60 units of short-acting insulin. Mrs. Towler was diagnosed hypoglycemic and successfully treated in the hospital. Nobody raised any concerns about her care, and luckily, Mrs. Towler lived. In 2016, Elizabeth Wetlaufer was hired by St. Elizabeth, the largest home health care provider in Ontario. She went to the home of Beverly Bertram, age 68, of Ingersoll on August 20, 2016. Beverly has a number of health issues and suffers from diabetes, which is controlled through injectable insulin. Beverly had a recent operation which required antibiotics, and Wetlaufer attended to administer them through a PICC line. Wetlaufer returned to Beverly's home the next day, and using insulin she'd stolen from another patient, Wetlaufer, frustrated with all the work she had to do, gave Beverly Bertram 180 units of insulin in three separate injections. She had not used Mrs. Bertram's own insulin, as it would be obvious if her supply was low. Wetlaufer was pretty cold-blooded. Absolutely. From court documents, Beverly Bertram recalled... Mrs. Wetlaufer taking a long time in the kitchen while obtaining her antibiotics from the fridge. After receiving what she thought were merely the antibiotics, Beverly Bertram described herself as feeling unusually nauseous and dizzy. Concerned, she decided not to inject herself with insulin that day and was able to recover from that state without any medical help. Hmm. So 180 units of insulin. That's it. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So she was, she had the wherewithal not to inject herself with more. Yeah. Elizabeth didn't know whether she died or not until she looked at the notes Hmm. later on. Elizabeth was to be assigned to work with diabetic children in a school. She freaked out and quit St. Elizabeth Healthcare. She was afraid of what she would do. She talked to her recovery friends and began to come clean with the real story. All of them told her she must own up to these crimes and get help, or they would be reporting her to police. Mm. Wow. On September 16th, 2016, Elizabeth Wetlaufer voluntarily admitted herself to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, located on College Avenue in Toronto. She claimed she thought she was going to harm herself or someone else. Once in CAMH, Elizabeth Wetlaufer began to spill the beans. Mm, So she mm. talked to a doctor and she wrote out a confession and the doctor told her he needed to share that with police. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Elizabeth Wetlaufer was done. She was willing to speak to police who picked her up from CAMH on October 5th, 2016, and they began to interview her back in Woodstock. Mm. 
the interview, over two and a half hours of it, uh, is available in our show notes as a YouTube link. She goes into a lot of detail, more than I did. Oh, wow. So if you want to watch that, you can. It was a very bizarre and disturbing interview, in my opinion. There were some really disturbing moments amid the horrific facts, of course. And she would say things like, when I do it afterwards, I would hear like a laughter in my tummy. Which doesn't make any sense. This was really weirded me out. She also spent some time farting in the small interview room. How aggressive is that? You're in the interview room with a cop and you're like, excuse me, but I have to pass gas and like loudly farting. It's like not even passive aggressive anymore. That's pretty active. That's, that's, it's act, it's that's it's aggressive. aggressive. <laughs> it's aggressive. Yeah. It's assault. It's disgusting. Anyway, and the, and the cop, like a trooper, he didn't react at all. <laughs> he was probably thinking, oh my God. Yeah. Yep. The Geneva Convention prohibits such things. Just gassing people. It's torture. Elizabeth Tracy May Wetlaufer was arrested and charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, four counts of attempted murder, and two counts of aggravated assault from the Canadian Encyclopedia website. On June 1st, 2017, Wetlaufer pleaded guilty to all 14 charges against her. Because she pleaded guilty, there was no trial. The court held a sentencing hearing on 26th of June 2017, giving victims and their loved ones a chance to read their impact statements aloud in court. Most described grief, depression, and guilt. Wetlaufer apologized in court that day, flatly telling those assembled that she was truly sorry. Oh, well, there you go. That's yes. that there, absolved. Her sentences were to be served concurrently, meaning that she has no chance for parole for 25 years. Mm, and that's a, that's a sentence. Yes. Elizabeth Wetlaufer now resides in Vanier Centre for Women in Milton, Ontario. She'll be eligible for parole in 2041. I'll lay money on her not getting out of that. Point. I concur. Uh, Wetlaufer had to have an abundance of insulin available and a lot of time with her victims to watch them go through the painful process of dying mm -hmm. by insulin OD. Yeah, no kidding. According to thepoisonreview.com, insulin is an inefficient and ineffective weapon, largely because of the length of time it takes to cause death and the ease with which it can be diagnosed and treated. But somehow it was missed a bunch of times. Yeah. Well, I guess that's part of the uh, it being elderly individuals is them suddenly and already having medical cons medical issues. Them suddenly slipping isn't necessarily exactly uh, unusual. Yeah, not expected. Yeah, yep. She knew what she was doing. She was angry with life and fe felt slighted by the helpless elderly people in her care. This coward just took their lives. Yeah. In no way do we want to imply that Wetlaufer's sexuality played a part in her crimes. However, the conversion therapy that Wetlaufer underwent while in college had to have some detrimental effects on her psychologically. Well, I, I would consider a lot of what she went through traumatic. And mm -hmm. so traumas will play a role in your life, not necessarily the specifics of them, but things that impact you significantly will play a role in your life. Yep. So-called conversion therapy, according to the Human Rights Campaign website, sometimes known as reparative therapy, is a range of dangerous and discredited practices that falsely claim to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity expression. Such practices have been rejected by every mainstream medical and mental health organization for decades, 
but due to continuing discrimination and societal bias against LGBTQ people. Some practitioners continue to conduct conversion therapy. Minors are especially vulnerable, and conversion therapy can lead to depression, anxiety, drug use, homelessness, and suicide. Yep. And I added, how about murder? Well, I think that's pretty rare. Right. But, but uh, at the same time, I, th- I definitely think that might have been a contributing factor to her illness or her anger at the world, I should say. It, it played a role in, in clear mental illness with this lady, for yep. sure. According to Equaldex, collaborative LGBT knowledge base, Conversion therapy has been banned only by the provinces of Ontario and Manitoba in Canada, and only a handful of U.S. states, like five of them. So come on, BC, get your shit together. That's pretty uh, upsetting. Yep. Huh. So it's not, it's like I say, it's only banned in those two. Very interesting. Wetlawfer's choice of helpless elderly patients is part of what allowed her to get away with murder so many times. These were people who were already in care and due to their advanced age, in some cases poor health, often diabetic, no autopsies or toxicology screenings were given. Yep. There always seemed to be another explanation that doctors felt comfortable going with. Yep. Because they're not going to suspect that one of their own is murdering, like killing off their patients either. And I think that's a rational uh, thought. Like you shouldn't have to be thinking, huh. So when somebody dies in, in uh, medical care, you shouldn't, your first thought shouldn't be, hmm, who killed them? Well, I have written here, who would murder helpless old people after all? Exactly. A hate-fueled serial killer named Elizabeth Wetlaufer, <laughs> that's who? Well, yes, and few others have done it, yeah. for sure, but uh, yeah. it was. It's pretty disgusting. It, it really is. Yeah. Vulnerable people. Yeah. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Once again, we're seeing people who are somehow perceived as less than by the systems of society and they become the victims of a serial killer. These killings are no different than the Green River Killer killing prostitutes or Willie Pickton murdering downtrodden, mostly native women from Vancouver's downtown east side. Yep, exactly. Society looks the other way when a lower class or perceived lower class or people who are perceived as less important become the target. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps the inquiry set to begin in June of this year will finally figure this shit out. Canada has to stop treating any citizen as second class. Although this may not have kept all of Wetlaufer's victims alive, there may have been fewer of them. Well, there is already plenty of opportunity for there to be fewer. A confession to the... Oh, yeah. It's just yep. one thing after the other. Yep. I was, uh, I was pretty disturbed by... Yep what I discovered. But again, there's those systemic problems that we have here in Canada. I think North America. Absolutely. And there's a lot of carryover between uh, a lot of societal issues in Canada and the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Before we go, we want to give a shout out to our newest Patreon patron. That's Gary Smith. Thank you, Gary, for uh, pledging to us. What up, Gary? Gary was the only one this week, which is, is kind of unusual, but I guess we're starting to suck or something or... Yeah, it, it's bound to happen. It's bound to it's, happen. We've jumped the shark. We, we've jumped the shark, yeah. Fonzie is wearing his leather jacket and his weird shorts and... Yeah, what, what, were they like jean shorts? No. I Officer Dangle-esque? Uh, uh, Jim, da- Jim Dangle? Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Gary, for your, for your pledge. Uh, we actually appreciate everybody who has pledged so far. Um, some of your pledges helped to uh, buy me the... Uh, 
the postage and those kind of things so I could send out your swag. Yeah, um, research books. Yep, research books. I am buying a lot of books, yes. I find. Yes. So every if every bit of the money that folks send actually gets put right back into the podcast. I was kind of hoping maybe we'd have a little extra, but we kind of don't. Eh, not yet. Yeah, well. If you want to donate to us, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Please tell your friends. I'd love to see some more Americans coming and learn about cool Canadian stuff. Yeah, totally. Because we have some really cool American south of the border folk. Absolutely. I am, I'm, again, we're blown away by our, our friends in the Yumber Yard and that keeps growing. We're, we're well over 250 folks in there now. and uh, Keep it coming, folks. Keep it coming. Uh, you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory, iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or at our host, Podbean. Uh, iTunes reviews, I am not going to say what I, is on my mind about the person who left us a two-star review and very rude. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, well, we might talk about it in the after show and that person won't care because they probably don't give us any money. <laughs> uh, don't forget to be a good egg. And not a bad apple. Dun, da, da, da. Away we go. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.